We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Are there any of you that came in here today and maybe you just say, I need a little assurance. I need a little confidence. I need to be bolstered a little bit. Sometimes when I open the Word of God, obviously we find conviction every time, and we're going to find that today. But there are some passages like 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 17 that just give us what we need to pick up our heads, to hold them high, to believe in the salvation that God has given us, to be confident and not to be anxious and not to worry and to recognize that God has got this. And friends, I am so thankful that God placed passages like this one in our hands today to be able to walk through and to be able to study. If you haven't already done so, turn with me there to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 as we continue our study together of our great and glorious hope. And we're talking about today what it looks like to stand your ground. Recently, the Huffington Post ran what I thought was an incredibly interesting article comparing the fears of children to the fears of adults. Most of the time as adults, we try to tell children that their fears are irrational. You shouldn't be scared of that. You shouldn't be afraid of that. You have nothing to worry about. I'm thinking about childhood fears that I had and childhood fears that my children have had. And probably every one of you have tried to navigate this at some point, whether it was a, a fear of the dark or monsters in the closet or, or whatever it may be. And so part of raising children is helping them to understand that there are things they're scared of that they don't have to be scared of. But what this article pointed out is, is that really a lot of children's fears and adult fears are very similar. And so they they looked at them and began to compare and contrast the fears that children have, the predominant fears that children have, and how those end up playing out in our adult lives. And, and I just wanted to share a few of those with you. Um, children, from the moment they are young enough to understand what the building is, often they are very scared of the doctor. Um, I don't know if you had any, any experiences like this, but one of my two, I had to physically hold down. I mean, when we went into the examination room, if it looked like an SHOT was coming, she would, oh, I just told you which one, remove, <laughs> remove herself from the premises immediately. I actually almost made it to the parking lot at one point and had to chase down and bring back and try to explain. And, and you realize how, looking back, how, crazy it sounds when you say, I know they're going to jab you with metal, but it's really not a big deal. It's not going to hurt for very long. It's going to make you feel better. And so often, oftentimes we end up as children being scared of doctors. Well, when we grow up, though we may, some of you are still scared to death of doctors and may still be scared to death of shots, but as we grow up, we may not be as scared of doctors but we are probably more scared of Dr. Bills. And you start to realize that perspectives begin to change. It's still associated with the same thing, but the fear, even though it's changed, it's still affiliated with the same thing. Uh, another example, um, kids, if you've probably at some point in a child's life had to run into their room, they've had a bad dream, and you've had to 
to wake them up and to explain to them it's okay, that didn't really happen, it's just a bad dream. And sometimes you've had to sit in there or lay with them and wait for them to calm down and, and hope that they would realize it was okay to go back to sleep, that everybody has bad dreams. Well, some of us even as adults still have bad dreams or at least weird dreams. But every one of us as adults, though we may not be scared of bad dreams, all of us find ourselves scared of unfulfilled dreams. Things that we were hoping were going to come true in our life, but maybe everything hasn't worked out how we wanted it to. If you've parented children before, you've tried to teach them Number one, that they are to avoid strangers. We tell them, stranger danger, stranger danger. But then as they get older, we're trying to make sure that they are knowing how to be polite and how to engage and how to speak to people. And so often children, they're afraid, especially small children, they're afraid of people they don't know or they don't recognize. And some of us never completely get over that fear because what we know is that there are many of adults that still are doing not only with a fear of the unknown, but a fear of social anxiety and what it would look like to be inside this, this group of people and how to act and how to behave. And so what we see is, is that some of those fears that we have as children, they grow up with us. And it's not just children that deal with fear. And it's not just children that deal with fear of the unknown. But one thing that you cannot be afraid of if you are going to have a life that has any peace to it, any effectiveness to it, you cannot be afraid of the unknown when it comes to eternity because that fear can be absolutely crippling. One of the things that has been a blessing and a challenge as a pastor over the years is the number of people that I see that I believe in my heart are genuinely saved genuinely redeemed, obviously justified. They have a testimony of having given their life to Christ and they live their lives in a way, not perfect, but they live their lives in a way where they try to honor the Lord and yet they have struggled mightily with the assurance of their salvation believing that they are actually saved, believing that God really is going to save them. And friends, I believe that our flesh will fight us in our belief of that, that Satan will fight you in your belief in that. But I will tell you today, and what we're going to see in this passage, is that if you are genuinely redeemed, if you are truly justified, if you are blood-bought, if you are born again, if you are, thank God Almighty, saved from the penalty and the power of sin, then you need to know today that your salvation is secure. And if your salvation is secure, it changes your, the way you live, it changes your freedom, it changes your worship, it changes everything about your life. So what you're going to see today is that Paul is going to make a transition a transition as we begin to read in verse 13. If you weren't here with us last week, the verses just before this, if you glance down at verse 13, you, you see that the, the first word is a conjunction, that Paul uses that conjunction, but. So what that tells us is, is that he is changing topics, that he is moving, that he's moving subjects. What did he talk about in the verses just prior to that? If we begin reading in the middle of verse 10, he is talking about the lost. And he says, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Paul is talking about the lost, the unredeemed, the unsaved, the people who refuse the gospel and the truth, those that will die in their sins and go to hell. And then all of a sudden, verse 13, we have this transition and he says, but not you but not you. And he begins to explain to them the difference in those that have not experienced the regenerating grace of God and those that have. And it is for that, friends, that you are here. So may the assurance of your salvation wash over you as we stand and read God's word together. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you. Brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Lord Jesus, we bow before you thanking you that you have equipped us to stand our ground and fight the good fight of faith. Lord, I pray that the redeemed of the Lord, those who are justified, saved, and blood-bought today, that you would use this passage that they may have a renewed confidence, not in the power of their faith, but in the power of the God of their faith. A God that can save us and keep us saved. A good shepherd whose hands we are safe in. Blood that is thicker than my greatest sin. A God that when he rescues me, rescues me forevermore. So, God, I pray today that you would help us to fight back the temptations of the flesh. I pray that you would help us to fight the devil and what he would try to tempt us with. That the redeemed of the Lord may be able to say so because they recognize the beauty of the security of our salvation and the perseverance of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated this morning? Our big idea this morning, God has equipped you to stand your ground to fight the good fight of faith. God has equipped you to stand your ground and to fight the good fight of faith. Let's see how God has equipped us. You really just have two big points this morning that we are going to explore to show us how God has equipped us to stand our ground. And number one, we are to be secure in our salvation. Be secure in your salvation. Look at verses 13 and 14. I told you we, we saw that transition, that transition word, the very first word. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord. Paul says, I thank God for you because you're not like the people I just described. The people I just described are people that are going to spend eternity in hell. But you brothers, and when he says brothers, we need to understand Paul is letting them know, I consider you family. And we've said this many times before. But if you have a physical brother, an actual biological brother, and that human being is not redeemed, is not born again, 
and you have a friend who is redeemed by the blood of Jesus, you are closer as a blood brother to the one who is saved than the one who is not. And the reason is, is because you have been grafted into the family of God. The Bible says you have been adopted. And by that sonship, Romans 8 says, we cry out, Abba. So we have the same heavenly father and he is including them. And even in these lines, he's wanting to assure them, brothers, I want you to know that I consider you a brother. Some of you are struggling. You've wondered whether you missed the rapture. Things have been tough. You're being persecuted. But you need to know, I, the apostle Paul, saved on the Damascus road the one who has given his life that was there to found your church I consider you a brother in Christ how many of you at some point in your life needed someone to look at you and say hey brother I want you to know I love you I want you to know I'm here for you I want you to know I know times are tough but I also want you to know that I see signs in you I see God working in you I see the Holy Spirit moving in you I see all types of things that are happening and I know it's the work of God oh I'm so thankful for people like those in this church that are willing to speak up and speak out and reach out to people and let them know that they see signs in people's life because it's not just about giving people an attaboy it's that in the Christian faith no matter how strong we are everybody needs a pat on the back every now and then everybody needs a little encouragement everybody needs to see that someone sees something in them that they see their faith moving and they see their faith growing and can you just imagine this little broken church in Thessalonica doing the best they can to scratch out their existence and make it in their doubt and their fear and all of a sudden this letter is read out loud and maybe it was that a few of them that had been sitting in the back because they were too embarrassed to come to the front maybe they heard those words and they picked up their head and they thought the apostle Paul considers me a brother there is something to understanding that you need to be confident in your salvation because you eliminate fear, you eliminate doubt, you eliminate worry, you eliminate stress, you eliminate anxiety, and you become more effective. Yes, friends, there is a time, and it's been done from this pulpit over and over and over again, and it will continue to be done, to challenge people who are resting on a non-genuine commitment. I truly believe like Billy Graham has said before in generations past, that there are many people that sit in church pews that think they're saved that are actually not saved. I believe that. But today is not about that because this text is not about that. This text is about talking to those of you who are saved who can go back to a moment in time and you look back and you remember I have trusted Jesus. I have given my life to Christ. I have believed that he died for me. I have believed that he was placed in that borrowed tomb. I do believe that he busted death and hell wide open and that he defeated my sin and shame on Easter Sunday morning. I have repented of my sins. I have asked him to come in, into my life. I've struggled and sometimes have been better than others and sometimes I've fallen and gotten back up. But the testimony of my life is that I really am saved. Friends, this message is for you. This message is for you and this text is for you because it reaches into who we are and helps us to understand and affirm that redemption that God has brought about in our lives because without eternal security, we have no confidence. We have no hope. Jesus said, red letters, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me 
and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. God's sovereign plan of salvation begins with his unconditional, undeserved love. Listen what he says. Brothers, you are, verse 13, loved by the Lord. And this love is not based on any merit. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. God does not love you because you're wonderful. God does not love you because you're holy. God does not love you because you're bright. God does not love you because you're beautiful. God does not love you because you're talented. God does not love you because you're good. God does not love you because you're well-dressed. God does not love you because you're wealthy. God does not love you for any of those reasons. God loves you, it says in this, pas- in this passage, because from the beginning, do you see this? From the beginning, God chose you to be saved. Ephesians 1.4 says, before the foundations of the world, God chose you to be saved. Now, I think I know what your follow-up question is. Why did God choose me? That's a great question. And it's one that this preacher can't answer. I can't answer it about myself and I cannot answer it about you. Because I'm positive that God chose me. But I'm just as positive that he had absolutely no reason inside of myself to do so. There's no merit or condition inside myself that would bring that about. And I've struggled mightily this week with trying to to be able to explain this doctrine in any way in which maybe we would even begin to get our minds around it. But I want to free you up in that we are going to try to do that. But I also want for those of you that are, and there are a lot of you in here, you're thinkers, you're analyzers, and that's great. There are things about the gospel that even the Apostle Paul called a mystery. They're so beautiful and so deep and so of God that they are difficult for us to completely understand the depths of the riches of the graces and mercies of God. But I thought about it this week. There used to be something inside my house when my children were small. And I didn't tell them this every day, but fairly frequently. I would go into their rooms, sometimes at night, before they would go to bed, maybe after we had said prayers or told them to turn out their light or to go to bed. And there was a phrase I I often uttered. And I'd say this. I'd say, I want you to know that there are billions of little kids in the world. And if I could line up every one of those billions of little kids in a single file line and could look in all of them, and God told me I could pick any kid I want to, I'd pick you. I'd pick you. And I thought about that this week. You say, well, well, Larry, would you pick them because you have the smartest kids in the world? Mm Mm-mm. Would you pick them because they're the best kids in the whole world? I like them, but no, they're not the best kids in the whole world. They're not the most athletic. They're not the most 
on their own abilities, I, I don't know. So why would I pick them? Because they're mine. And I think the reason, the deepest reason for us to understand why God chose us is simply because we're His. And that because we are His, we know that from the beginning it says God chose us to be saved. And I thought about it looking back on my life. We've all had, I think, a similar situation. Elementary, middle school, you're out on the playground and you've got free play or you've got recess and whether it's football or basketball that you're going to play. And then they say, everybody starts screaming, who's going to be team captain? I'll be team captain. I'll be team captain. And then everybody else lines up against the fence. You familiar with, with, with this? And then the, 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 the first one says, all right, I got first pick. And if I get first pick, y'all get ball first. They agree to that. And boom, they, they pick. And most of the time, those first few picks, they rattle off because everybody knows that's, that's the best athlete, that's the best one. So I got him, I got him, I got him, I got him. And, and those first seven or eight picks, they roll off pretty quick because everybody's already kind of got a mental order of, of who's at the top. And then you kind of get to the middle and things slow down a little bit, right? And then you get to that last three or four. That kid that can't walk and chew gum at the same time. The, the one that doesn't know a football from a soccer ball. And normally there's two or three and they're sitting along the fence and the two captains are kind of looking at each other. And by this time, nobody's really picking anybody anymore. You just end up on a team by default. Uh, I guess you take him, I'll take him, right? And, and then the teams end up being fleshed out. And when we think about what God has done for us in salvation, it isn't that he lined everybody up along the fence and said, hmm, now there's one I need for my team. And, and there's one I need. And the reason we know that is because if we look over church history, it isn't the people that by the world's standards have done incredible things for God. It's the people that nobody would have picked. It's the people that were left against the fence. Sometimes it was people that people thought didn't have the sense to get out of the rain. And sometimes it was people who had been rejected in other areas of life. And it was people that God said, I'm not choosing you because of those things. In fact, I may be choosing you in spite of those things. Now that's not to say that God can't use people who have secular abilities and, and secular talents because he certainly does. But those aren't the qualifications that God uses. And so from the beginning, God chose us. And when he chose us, it said the sanctifying work of the Spirit began in us. And it sets a believer apart to righteousness. And this begins at regeneration. I think people get tripped up in the assurance of their salvation sometimes because of sanctification. Now, if you're saved, you should see progress in your spiritual life, period. If you supposedly got saved and since that moment, you have never grown closer to the Lord, you've never had a desire for worship, you've never had a desire to pray, you've never had a desire to read God's word, you've never had a conviction about sin in your life, then you're lost. That's period. You will be sanctified if you are saved. But for most of you, 
You've given your life to Christ and you know you've seen God move in your life. You know there's been sanctifying work in your life. You know there's been progress. But where I think we get held up and I think what the devil has done to a lot of you and what your flesh has convinced you of is that sometimes because what our salvation looks like, we want it to look like that it is just a straight line of sanctification that we're getting better, 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 better all the time until one day we die and go to heaven and everything's glorified. But that's not always what life looks like, amen? How many of you understand that in your spiritual life often, and I wish it wasn't like this, but often it's three steps forward and two steps back. How many of you have ever in your relationship with Christ been growing and then had a mishap? Fallen into some sort of sin or given into some sort of temptation or gotten distracted? Now does that mean that you're not saved? If you continue to live in that, it'll rob you of the assurance of your salvation because it's impossible to have the assurance of salvation if you're living in disobedience. That may be a whole other sermon for a different day, but, but I want you to know that. Some of the reason that some of you aren't assured of your salvation is because you were living in habitual sin, and there's no way that you're going to have any assurance if you continue in sin, right? But if you understand the progressive aspect of sanctification, what sanctification is is not that you just continually improve on the same line all of the time, but it's when you are knocked two steps back that you get back up again because the conviction of the Holy Spirit tells you to, because the empowerment of the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to, and you see it as a growth process. How many of you can look back on your life and remember a time where it was one or two steps back, but now that you look at it, you recognize that even though you don't want to fall into that sin again, you know that God is now using what the devil wanted to destroy you with because God brought you out of that and now you're more aware of it than ever before. Some of you are more merciful to other people than you would have ever been before. Some of you are avoiding pitfalls that you would have never avoided before. Some of you love better and you're more merciful than you ever were before. And it's because not only were you rescued on the day of your salvation, you are continually being rescued. That's part of what sanctification is and we are sanctified and then Paul puts this phrase in we are sanctified through belief in the truth belief in the truth we talked about God's electing work but there is also a human factor in God's plan that there would be faith in truth this isn't just mental assent but surrender to a firm conviction. Yes, God chooses, but we are responsible to exercise faith. Here's where I think people, not only in Southern Baptist life, but in other denominational life, preachers have gotten sideways, congregations have gotten sideways. When it comes to the doctrine of election, when it comes to the doctrine of predestination, we hear those words and people go, <gasps> why? I ask you this, does the Bible teach election? Absolutely. Does the Bible teach predestination? Absolutely. Does the Bible teach God's sovereign choice? Absolutely. You don't have to run from those doctrines. Does the Bible also teach human responsibility? Does the Bible also teach faith? Does the Bible also teach that man is responsible to make a choice? Yes. It's not either or, it's both and. So where we often struggle is, well, how do I reconcile those two things, Brother Larry? I don't know. 
God chose me, and because he chose me, I have the ability to place my faith in him. And I'm okay with that. I'm perfectly okay with that as the answer. Because I've wrestled with it my whole life, and now I know that it is a beautiful, complex, Godhead mystery, and I'm just thankful that he allows me to be a part of it. He has called you through our gospel because that is the only way we could come is to be energized by the Spirit and drawn by the gospel to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus. That is the ultimate goal. I love, write this verse down, Romans 8, 35 through 39. Sometimes you may think that your circumstances, your situation, even your sin, your problems, your family issues, all of that, it's making it where it may feel like to you that, that you've been separated or removed from the love of God. But the Bible says neither height nor depth nor angels nor demons nor powers nor principalities that nothing, absolutely nothing can separate you from the love of God. So quit placing your faith in yourself to stay saved and start placing your faith in the God who saved you to keep you saved. Do you see the difference? It's enormous. Be secure in your salvation and then finally, be strong in your convictions. Be strong in your convictions. Verse 15 through 17. Stand firm. Hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. And may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Be strong in your convictions. Hold your ground. Keep your grip on the truth, Paul says. When Paul says tradition, he's not talking about extra biblical baggage, which God has condemned all throughout Scripture. This isn't tradition for tradition's sake. He's talking about the gospel. He's talking about the word of God that's been passed on. You see, friends, we've been given a trust. It's amazing to think about that the gospel for 2,000 years, that Jesus shared it with the apostles, and the apostles then shared it with the first century church, and the first century church shared it, and it went on and on for generation upon generation upon generation to all of a sudden now in our day. Guess what? Look at me. Somebody shared the gospel with you. Somebody shared the gospel with you, praise God. Somebody, your mama or your daddy shared the gospel with you. A Sunday school teacher shared the gospel with you. A pastor shared the gospel with you. A youth leader shared the gospel with you. Somebody shared the gospel with you and the light came on and you were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And I would tell you, you have been given a trust. There's a generation coming after this one and the way that we hold on to that trust is we so glory in and so honor the gospel that we understand I'm not gonna allow it to stop with this generation. Oh no, this is a sacred trust that must be passed on. Some of you are gonna inherit some things one day. Maybe you've already been given them by, by a loved one who's still living and they've said, I want you to have this. Often in Southern culture, sometimes a, a father or a grandfather will, will pass down a gun a firearm, or, or, or maybe a knife that was in the family, or maybe a, a, a piece of pottery or, or jewelry or, or china that comes down in the family. Now, I'm just telling you, I don't have a lot of those things, but there's a couple of those things that are in my family that are, have been or will be passed down to me. And I just wanted to, want you to know, they're not for sale. Some of them 
are not worth a lot. I mean, we're not talking about big money stuff, but it was stuff that was my great grandfather's and then was my grandfather's and then was my dad's and it's gonna be mine. And I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it. I'm not selling it. And the reason I'm not selling it is is because it's been given to me, it's been passed on, it's a trust. Friends, we need to understand that the gospel is certainly more beautiful than a firearm that would be passed down. It's certainly more beautiful than a china plate. And we need to say, I'm not giving it up. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's the greatest thing that anybody's ever shared with me. It's the, anything that, the greatest thing that anybody's given to me. I honor it. I love it. I cherish it. And I'm going to be sure that I honor that trust. And may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father give us this encouragement, this good hope. Strengthen us in every good word and every deed. It is awesome awesome what Paul does here because he says Jesus and God our Father. Paul says I want you to know I call him Father. Jesus calls him Father and you call him Father. The fact that God lets you call him Father is really incredible. And the reason I know that is because I don't have the right. I wasn't born with the right because I wasn't born his son. The only person that was ever born with the right to call God Father is Jesus. That didn't come as my birthright. But yet now I can call him Father. A couple of weeks ago, we were laughing in the kitchen. We were making something to eat. and One of my, one of my kids jokingly as they came by, they said, uh, Hey, Larry, you want to pour me something to drink? And they were being, you know, it, 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 being silly. And, and so, uh, so I looked at them and gave them, you know, the whole, the whole evil eye thing. And, um, and I, I said something just kind of off the cuff. I said, uh, I said, you really don't want to call me Larry. And it wasn't because I was about to come down on them. This wasn't like a serious infraction. This was, but here's what I said. And I believe this. There's really only two people in the whole world that can call me daddy. And it comes with certain privileges. The rest of you in here, y'all call me Larry. I don't pay for your stuff. <laughs> y'all don't live at my house. Y'all don't drink my milk. I don't drop what I'm doing to come to your stuff. There's certain privileges that come with being my kid. So you want to call me dad because you want me to treat you like I'm your dad. You don't want me to treat you like Larry. Not that I'm not nice to everybody else, but you want to call me dad. I'm glad he's my God, but I'm so thankful I get to call him father because it comes with rights and privileges that only the right of a child has. And I'm thankful, thankful, thankful for that. It's only through embracing the Son that we're allowed to enjoy the fatherhood of God and to be blessed with what Paul says with this internal encouragement and good hope. A good hope. I hear people all the time talk using the word hope. It's thrown around all the time. Well, I hope my team gets to a bowl game. Well, I hope we're able to get the victory. Well, I hope I get this for Christmas. 
Well, I hope that this pot roast turns out right today. Well, I, I hope everybody will make it to the party. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. But most of the time when people say that, they're talking about it kind of like it's a wish. Like, eh, could happen, could not happen. Biblical hope is not that kind of hope. Biblical hope is certainty. It is certainty. So when he says hope, Paul's not saying, well, maybe it'll take place. He is saying absolutely because my hope, what's the song say? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. All other ground is what, church? Sinking sand, but on Christ the solid rock I stand. Amen? So my hope is not a, well, we'll wait and see. My hope is sure because Jesus is risen. My future is sure because Jesus is one. And so because of that, if I am redeemed, if I am born again, if I am saved, if I am justified, if I am blood-bought, then church, raise up your heads towards the heavens and recognize that you can quit living in doubt and you can quit living in fear and you can quit living in stress and you can quit living in worry and you can quit living in insecurity and you can recognize that you are redeemed just as Jesus died on the cross and rose again and that is sure so is the great and glorious hope of your salvation. Stop doubting and believe and live like you're saved. Amen. Please stand with me. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.